Welcome to the Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. We are reading our way through our favourite series of novels, the Aubrey Matchery novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, where in Patrick O'Brien's canon had we got up to last week? Where is the journey taking us this week? Oh, thanks, Ian. Last week in Chapter 2 of Clarissa Oaks slash The True Love, remember, we want to hear from you if you have any insight as to why these two titles in yeah. two parts of the world. But last week in Chapter 2, Stephen had successfully treated Jack's bad temper and liver with a night of laudanum-induced sleep. Now, Jack had also had Bondin report no landing possible on Norfolk Island so that Oaks and Clarissa were not marooned but married. Big turnaround there. A cutter from New South Wales had brought fresh orders to intervene in a power struggle south of the Sandwich Islands. And Clarissa, at the end of the chapter, impressed the officers with her keen interest in naval actions at Jack's wedding dinner following the the marriage here. Now, this time, Jack and Stephen are going to puzzle with some letters from home, and Jack's going to puzzle with these new orders a little bit. Martin has some decisions to make. Clarissa is increasingly on the minds of all the surprises officers, and the gunroom's delayed wedding feast gets an unexpected main course. Ah, very good, Mike. Now, as is often the case when we get a chapter of lots of kind of character and what you might call domestic exposition, because that's what we're on the hunt for here, we are beginning with the characters hanging out with each other and writing letters. Remember, we had this big stash of mail that came aboard the surprise. And now people are kind of paging through their mail and also beginning to respond to it. This is a distraction for Stephen because he encounters Clarissa a couple of times on deck. But his time is really taken up by piecing together his picture of the intelligence world. He's got lots of intelligence-related correspondence to take care of. And he's trying to decipher the letters from Diana. These letters... He's already spotting that there's something is not quite right here. They're brief, they're sparse and incoherent. He's getting some irrelevant sounding details about horse pedigrees and not really any real communication about Diana or about his new daughter. And by the way, Mike, I I don't think we've even heard her name yet. No, I don't think we have. You're right. Now, she mentions the birth and the baby in this very offhand passing way. She describes the birth as most unpleasant and agonizing bore. I am glad it is over. And talking about the daughter, Diana says, she seems rather stupid. Do not expect too much. And what, what that must be like for Stephen reading, I can only kind of boggle at. He can't figure out the order of her letters. She's not an experienced naval letter writing wife like Sophie Aubrey is. And so there's no numbering, there's no clear order, and he has to spend a long time decoding, more time than he, than he spends actually decoding actual coded dispatches from Sir Joseph Blaine. As best he can tell, Diana is not happy. We've learned that much. As best he can tell, Diana and Sophie have taken to disagreeing about who and how should entertain. Sophie clearly thinks that naval wives conducting themselves properly should not go out in society, especially not where there's dancing, and should only receive family and old friends, which is all a sort of 
in, indirect swipe, I think, at Diana and her different set of morals. Diana is spending a lot of her time at Barham Downs with her Arabians, with her horses, and driving there in a new green coach. And this is all giving the suggestion, Mike, of, of Diana being a little bit kind of flash and loose in a way that we've heard about with, you know, with, with trepidation in the past. Stephen hopes without much conviction that having a baby might have changed Diana, but never had he thought that she would be quite such an indifferent mother as these letters, these curiously disturbing letters suggest. The letters are also worrying because as he and Jack are reading aloud to each other, pieces for, you know, for, to each other, they're worrying because Jack never mentions Diana, never mentions Barham Downs, and this opacity, what, he, what O'Brien calls the lack of their usual frank and open interchange arises between them. There's, there's, a, there's now a gap between these two characters. And Mike, that makes me feel bad because I can remember times in the past when these two people have not been sharing their thoughts and that has always signified you know, a bad outcome. Right. Jack, meanwhile, is reading more of Sophie's letters. He learns from Sophie's perspective. Her telling of the situation is that the baby seems a little strange and Diana is drinking heavily. But Sophie doesn't want Jack to mention a word to Stephen because there's nothing he can do about it until he returns. And Mike, this this whole thing just, you know, kills me inside. These two friends who've, like we say, always been at their best when they're sharing their, their knowledge and their feelings with each other won't and can't do that because Sophie is writing this stuff in confidence to Jack. And, and I'm guessing this is one of the tough things about being on military service, in command especially, on a tour of duty far from home, you end up knowing things about your comrades, things about, in this case, your particular friends that are agonizing for you and that you can't process and that you can't discuss. And, you know, we've seen this in other military stories. We've seen this in Saving Private Ryan. You know, I know something about your family that means I have to go and do this thing. How far is Jack going to go in letting this knowledge impact on his everyday decisions? His decisions as a commanding officer, his decisions as Stephen's friend. And it's it, it's agonizing as we read it. Yeah. It, it kind of killed me a little bit just for Sophie to be telling Jack, you know, oh, you know, there's nothing Stephen can do about this. So let's not let it weigh on him the whole voyage. Oh, and there's gosh. nothing you can do about it, but I'm going to let it weigh on you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks, Sophie. But you feel better. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, Jack's further concerned because he's, he's not only, as you say, and he's having to really kind of play it close to the vest as, as he shares his letters with Stephen. But now... His orders that he's received from Sydney, you know, that his orders always say, you know, consult with Dr. Matron, talk to Dr. Matron. Now the orders don't say anything about that. And Jack's trying to figure it out. He says, you know, is, is this because they were written in Sydney, you know, and therefore Sydney didn't really know as much about it? Or I don't know, Sydney's in communication with Whitehall and maybe they, like Jack, know Stephen's views on colonialization and this kind of muscular protection of one government by the other. And so Jack's really afraid now. He's saying, well, you know, I could offend Stephen by not bringing him into my confidence about this mission. But then again, if I bring him into confidence about this mission, I'm probably going to offend him anyways, because he's yeah. not going to like the mission. And, you know, he's not going to appreciate me asking him to collaborate on it since, you know, it looks a lot like we're trying to annex this territory to Great Britain. Yeah, not a good thing for a well-adjusted democracy to do, as as some of us know in the world these days. <laughs> <laughs> Too true, right? Oh, well, kind of to add to those worries, Jack's worried that you know he's he's inherited these two estates: his father's estate, 
his cousin Edward's estate. And there's all kinds of legal procedures to be followed, duties to be paid, oaths to be sworn, you know, multi-year matters that have been left unresolved that you know need to be settled. And, and Jack's never worried about this because ever since he was a midshipman, Mr. Withers, the family's attorney, has managed both of these estates. But as it turns out, while Jack's been at sea, Mr. Withers had died. And his successor, not knowing what to do with any of these, did what any good self-respecting lawyer would do. He boxed them off and sent them to the client and said, here, you deal with this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks for all these fees for all these years, but uh, our firm's now going to turn it right back over to you here. So Jack is like, we heard about, like you said, in these trunks of legal papers, trunks and trunks and trunks that have been coming here. So Adams is helping Jack with this, trying to sort some of it out. Jack's also turning to Stephen as well, in particular about two benefices, which you know he's kind of inherited here. He has that right. We've talked about these advisons before that you know he can kind of nominate a person to be the rector and the benefice of, of an area there. And he's dealing with that. And he asks Stephen, is Martin an idoneous person? And Stephen says, Idonius for what? And Jack replies, well, just Idonius. <laughs> and, and, and we can kind of see what's going on here. You know, Jack's been told, he says, you know, to nominate an Idonius person. Well, Idonius means is fit or appropriate for, is suitable for. And so Stephen's like, you know, is, is he appropriate for what? Jack, like, you know, oh, I'm not, I don't know what it really means. I just think, is, I just need to know, does he have Idonius stamped on his forehead, right? But then Stephen realizes what's going on with these adversaries. And he says, oh, you know, as far as the benefices are concerned, no one could be more Idonius fitting or suitable than Martin since he is an Anglican clergyman. Right, that makes him suitable. Ah, so Jack says, oh, that makes him Idonius, does it? I was not aware. So, you know, we do. <laughs> I, I love how, you know, as always, O'Brien will, you know, ratchet up the tension a little bit and then give us a little comic relief here. So that's yeah. nice. And l let's just say this is not the last time in this chapter that we're going to sort of scratch our heads a little bit about the conduct and the motivations of Nathaniel Martin. He's right. He already had that kind of strange remark that he made, was it last chapter or the previous chapter about seeing Clarissa Oaks in, in breaches? Well, we should maybe come back to that. Right. But Nathaniel Martin is a strange fella and Jack is kind of scratching his head, I think, about how to do the best by him and the best for him. This strange tone to the chapter and these strange conversations between all of our characters here continues. So before we get further into the, the weirdness that's happening between the characters, I really enjoyed, Mike, digging into this business of the benefices and the advowsons, this really quaint old bit of canon law that says the landowner is, has the right to give these these livings, if you like, um, away to whomever he chooses. I love the detail about the the crops and the land holdings and their income. The place names are funny. Fenny Horkel. I I can't find any place in the West Country actually named Fenny Horkel. There are some villages in Devon that begin with Venny, but none of them sounds like Venny Horkel. Up Hellions also sounds like a comedy made up name, but it does turn out that there is an actual place called Upton Hellions a village in Devon, home of a beautiful church. Uphelians, in the book we learn, has good crops. Um, it has a fairly healthy number of parishioners, but no nice house and no river. Huh. There's the third benefice, this place called Yarrow, 
which has three times the income. So financially, it's much more appealing, but it's not vacant yet. And I'm looking at this thinking, well, surely this is another made-up name. But it turns out they're both Yarrell and the, the name of the, the incumbent at the time, Cicero Rabbits, which sounds like a made-up name, that's a real person <laughs> who was genuinely living in Bath at the time of the early 19th century. £4,000 in income from less than 500 souls. So, yeah, great. I think there's, there's some combination of O'Brien must have had a source for all the obscure canon law, and he must have been looking in an old gazetteer thinking, I know what fun I can have with these quaint-sounding place names. And this has got, as well as having us scratching our heads, this has got Martin scratching his head about just what kind of choice does he want to make. And it's got Jack scratching his head about saying, well, I don't know what to do with these. And maybe if I give them to this guy, Martin, we won't be feeling so awkward in each other's company. Yeah. And I I love how Jack is kind of approaching Stephen to say, you know, help me figure this out. And by the way, would you mind telling Martin about it? And Stephen saying, you know, (laughs) hey, why don't you just go ahead and tell Martin about it and uh, just tell him to take his time and think about what he'd like to do. Because I, and I think Jack's a little bit like, well, I don't want to appear to be doing him a favor. And, and also they're not real plums. So I don't, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. just not quite sure what to do with this. So it's kind of a nice moment between Jack and Stephen there too. Right, right. Well, Stephen, um, after this conversation with Jack, continues his letter to Diana. And like you said, Ian, I love how we're, you know, all this, the letter writing is filling us in here. Now, he's now feeling a little bit calmer about Diana because he realizes that there's probably some tension going on between Diana and Sophie. You know, and, and he thinks to himself, you know, Sophie's world is always going to disapprove of Diana's world. In Sophie's world, you know, women drink at most one glass of wine. Horses are disliked and seen as dangerous, smelly, and unpredictable animals. That Sophie, like her mother, kind of, you know, some of this is, you know, is, is the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, you know, would certainly not approve of Diana's active social life, her fox hunting, her driving this new coach off to her own property with only one servant up behind. Uh, and, and he kind of is fascinated thinking about how England has sort of intermingled a lot more here at this time leaving two very close cousins coming from such widely different kind of cultural worldviews here. And he said, clearly those different views, you know, would lead to a disagreement, even if Diana had been a devoted mother, which she quite obviously was not. Disagreement, and as a natural consequence, in even so sweet-natured a woman as Sophie, leading to an unbalanced account with never a lie from beginning to end, but essentially untrue. So I think Stephen's kind of talking himself off the ledge going, okay, I'll bet Jack's reading a bunch of stuff from Sophie. I'm sure it sounds awful, but it's probably the way they just see the world differently. And I think he's trying to tell himself, no, no, this is going to be okay. But I think he knows perhaps just a little bit not. It's it's a great and really penetrating and really kind of unsettling portrayal of connections between families that are not being straight with each other so, yeah ne- never a lie but essentially untrue right yeah. right yeah boy we don't see much of that today not on any social media i read right, right? <laughs> yeah. so Stephen goes on to tell diana in his letter back to her about clarissa harville and he catches her up with the story of clarissa being brought aboard and hidden until jack would no longer feel duty bound to take her back to new south wales he goes through the story of jack threatening to maroon the couple the, the facade with bondon and the surf and norfolk island and finally then 
he reports Jack having changed his opinion of her from that of she's a wench, uh, a woman un- unlucky, capable of using fresh water to wash their clothes, to the point that Jack is now at where he realizes that in uh, Stephen's words here, she is quite pretty, modest and well-bred, not at all the trollop that might have been expected. And now he, Jack, is reconciled to her presence. And Stephen is starting to, I think, intermingle a little bit his perspective on Clarissa Oaks with Jack's perspective on Clarissa Oaks. And he's writing in this uh, in this way, perhaps to allow himself to unburden himself the thoughts about Clarissa whilst ascribing them to Jack as he's writing to Diana here. He writes that Mrs. Oaks has, in his words, two women in her. One that is anxious for approval, civil, agreeable. But he says when she's asked personal questions about her past, this other woman appears and he describes her as being Medea rather than Clarissa Oaks. Stephen says he'd watched her shut down Jack and Davidge's questions in a way that stopped all other inquiries. And of course, Mike, Medea in Greek mythology is a scheming woman who fiercely pursued her own interests. Jason, in the story of Jason and the Argonauts, had abandoned Medea for a younger bride, and Medea slaughtered the bride, slaughtered the bride's father and her own two sons to further hurt her ex-husband. So a really, really ruthless character. Uh, And in the play, at least, some of the gods appear to support her. So it's... I guess that sometimes is meant to signify that a, a woman can do what she needs to do to take charge of her own life in a patriarchy. And what's going on in this chapter, if not signs of patriarchy? And when this woman, in this case, Medea, is treated with disrespect and mockery, may, maybe it's inevitable that she takes her own uh, her own choices. Maybe Diana's going to be able to relate to this. Maybe Medea is a, is a well-chosen reference for Stephen here. And uh, Medea pretty clearly is a is a Diana, never apologize, never explain kind of a gal. <laughs> Much more like that than Sophie anyway. Well, days later, the surprise is making great speed. She's finally caught the Southeast trades. And Clarissa, you know, they're, they're kind of sitting out on deck together. And Clarissa asks Stephen if, uh, if she can consult him. But she says, but perhaps female disorders lie far outside the purview of a naval surgeon. Stephen replies, well, in the nature of things, he has little to do with them. But I am also a physician and therefore omniscient. So I got a little chuckle out of, of Stephen's reply here. I, I think it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but he's also saying, yeah, no, no, I can I can take care of you. I, I know a bit more than most naval surgeons. And he accepts her as a patient, is taking her off for an exam and says, well, perhaps your husband wants to come along with us. And she says, no, no, no need for that. But she does holler over to Oaks and says, the doctor will see her now. He's quite pleased with that. And, you know, they talk about where to do this examination and, and, you know, where they'll have good light, where they won't be overheard by the entire ship. And they finally settle on Stephen's cabin with Clarissa saying, you know, they can speak French. She's pretty fluent. And that way the crew, even if they overhear them, won't understand. So she first, though, before the examination starts, confirms that, in, you know, even at sea, medical men never talk about their patients. So she wants some you know, patient doctor confidentiality here. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen assures her that, yeah, absolutely. And after the exam, we you kind of jump back in and Stephen tells her she's mistaken. She's not pregnant and is very unlikely to be so um, or to become so. She's very relieved. She said that Dr. Redford had told her the same thing ashore, but of course, he was only a surgeon. Mm. Uh, and she says she's so thrilled that she's not pregnant because she 
Lowe's children would rather have a pack of baboons in the house than the typical boy or girl. And Stephen, I think, is a little put off here, but, you know, says civilly, well, I, I guess there aren't very many amiable baboons, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'll send you some physic along and you can come back and see me again next month. And I, I've got to admit, this this kind of knocked me off the seat a little bit, Ian, you know, with, yeah. with, with especially with Stephen just having had, you know, his little girl with all the stuff going on with Diana, the timing is not a great one to have. Clarissa really, you know, I loathe children. And we've had, you know, we've had Jack prodding Stephen a little bit going, you know, I'm not so sure you're going to really get into this whole childhood, you know, raising children and everything. So I, I don't know. We'll see, see what comes of it here. Yeah. It's really shocking. And I think it's, it's characterizing Clarissa for us as well a little bit. This is this, this Medea character. She will say even quite brutal, quite harsh things with apparently no consequence, but we'll see. Well put. Yeah. So right after Clarissa leaves, Martin comes in. It's his turn to ask for a confidential chat with Dr. Maturin. And it turns out that it's it's uh, it, it's not a sensitive medical matter. It's a sensitive financial matter. But just like Clarissa, he values some confidentiality. So in Latin this time, instead of French, they agree to go to what Stephen calls the upper floor of the third mast, <laughs> which they would do if it wasn't blowing 10 knots. So instead... They decide to just go ahead and have the conversation. Martin says, I've had this offer from Captain Aubrey of these two livings. He's talking about Uphelians and uh, and Fanny Hawkel. Martin says that neither is worthwhile to him all by itself, financially or in terms of the property. Fanny can't support its parson uh, and its big parsonage without the income coming from Uphelians. However, Martin instinctively is opposed to the idea of you know having the rights over the place but not being in residence. So that doesn't work for him. And Stephen quotes this French proverb about uh, the economics of priesthood saying the priest must live off his altar, meaning, you know, cut your coat according to your cloth, in other words, and thinks to himself that when he'd first met Martin, Martin would have been delighted with the offer of either parish by itself. But then he was a bachelor then. But Mike, by the way, I don't think it's just to do with Martin being a bachelor or not. I think we're seeing this evolution of Martin into this rather less appealing person. He then goes on and says, I've been thinking about Yarel, the third parish that's not open yet because there's an incumbent still alive. And he says, well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe waiting for the more rewarding benefits would give him a few more years of what he calls this delightful rambling. But then on the other hand, he says, I'm worried that Captain Aubrey does not seem to altogether like my presence. Maybe he's trying to get me ashore now. And maybe that's why he's offered the two parishes with the more short-term kind of return here. And Martin says he's noticed from the gun room that it's hard to be shut up with someone that you don't like day after day. What do you think of this? He says to Stephen. Stephen says, I, I don't agree. Your premises and conclusions are all wrong. First, he says, waiting for Yarol isn't going to give you many years sailing because Jack's going to be back onto a regular ship of line as soon as they're done with this expedition around the world. The surprise is going to get laid up and our botanizing days might be short numbered. Second, the captain doesn't dislike you, he says. The captain doesn't dislike you at all. And thirdly, the captain had mentioned Yarrell as a first choice. So he's trying, I think, in good faith to set Martin straight and say, stop, stop second guessing this. Stop looking gift horses so straight in the mouth. Right. And says, consider the matter with these in mind. And says, let me beg you not to suppose, as many good men do, that whatever is desirable is wrong. 
Yeah, spoken like a Catholic with some self-awareness there. <laughs> but Mike, I, I love the juxtaposition. Whatever is desirable is wrong, we get in, the, in, in connection with Nathaniel Martin and his income. And I love the juxtaposition with Stephen's own perspective on desirability coming up here in this next paragraph. Yeah, Stephen immediately thinks to himself when he says that, well, Clarissa Oaks is desirable. Oh, and then he kind of, you know, keeps that walled in the parenthesis of his mind. But then he shifts the topic and mentions to Martin that he noticed that some of the pages in Asterix's book, De Lue Venera, he, he noticed that Martin has folded over. And, and in fact, this is a, a 1736 book that Jean Asterix wrote about the, the plague of Venus, Venus's plague, a book about venereal diseases. And O'Brien tells us that Martin has his own private patients, just like Stephen has some private patients, and that they currently include the bosun, who's a little too ashamed to see Stephen in this case. I, I, I take it it's a case of presenting like venereal disease. Martin says he's worried. He's been reading this because Hunter, another authority, believes that the diseases, some of the different venereal diseases are essentially the same. Ostrich says that they're different. And Martin's case has symptoms that fit neither one of their descriptions. And Stephen, he empathizes with him. He says, you know, in some of these cases, or especially in early diagnosis, it's hard and that sometimes with longer, well-established infections, particularly with women, many physicians will miss this and, and sometimes confuse a venereal discharge with an estrogen-simulated one or vice versa. You know, think that it's, right. it's, it's kind of innocent, but it's not here. It, Stephen agrees, unless these things present classically, they're often very hard to detect. And he says, and, and even when we can detect them, there's little we can do to treat them since mercury as a remedy can sometimes be worse than the disease, especially in, in unskilled hands. So as you say, Ian, the, the juxtaposition here, wait a minute, I'm thinking about Clarissa Oaks. Oh, yeah. by the way, Martin, why have you been turning over the pages in the venereal <laughs> disease book? Oh, by the way, just as an aside, sometimes these are hard to spot in women, but we'll just leave it there. So, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, I can't help but feel that O'Brien's setting us up somehow. Maybe yeah. we should under this, huh? Yeah, I'm not asking for me. It's for the bosun. Oh, yeah, okay. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, that's right. Well, Mike, I, I, I think this all means that we probably need to go just take, take a moment to go and consult our own medical references and, uh, and, and, and consider the uncertainty of diagnosis in a tough clinical situation. That's right. <laughs> and grab ourselves a quick refreshing break. Let's grab a break and we'll be right back to you in just a few minutes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers whole. So welcome back. We've had all of this intriguing back and forth between the individual characters. We've had all this tension and misunderstanding and duplicity or you know, at least multiple meanings and multiple misunderstandings building up between the characters. There are tensions brewing in all directions. And now, Mike, we have to see O'Brien play them out. And how does he do that? Dinner. Not one in this case, but two dinners. So we get to the first of our two dinners as Jack takes the afternoon watch on Thursday so that the gun room members can dine together. They're going to celebrate the anniversary of the launch of the surprise, which is a very venerable anniversary. Stephen 
had not eaten with the gunroom for quite some time. So he's kind of getting his way back into this little society in a way. He notices that Martin must have been talking about West and Davidge when he spoke of being confined on a ship with a man that you can't stand because there's clearly bad feeling between West and Davidge. They get to talking about the man-eaters of Fiji in the context of a conversation about the ship possibly calling in at Fiji, and the disagreement between these two officers becomes really clear. Stephen, in his very slightly detached way, seeks to just keep the conversation turning over by adding in some icky but inconsequential scientific facts. He adds that the, the manatees of Fiji use the leaves of a special plant, Solanum anthropophagus, which means served with human meat, which is called the cannibal's tomato. This, not really tomato, this fruit is used to make a condiment for the meat. And Mike, I, I looked this up and to my horror, this is an absolutely real thing. This species of fruit exists in the Polynesian islands and it absolutely was used at a time when they were into cannibalism as a kind of relish for eating human flesh. So Yeah, yeah that they would wrap the leaves around the meat to make it more tender and then use what looks like, you're right, this, this small little tomato to make a relish to go with it. Hell, a little sauce for my leg here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Out. What's, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gun room. So there you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, after this this luncheon at supper with Jack in the cabin, Stephen mentions this dinner with his gunroom messmates, arguing about what to serve the Oakses for dinner to celebrate their wedding. And, and Martin, he says, had mentioned hogs perhaps from Fiji, since, you know, Mrs. Oakes likes roast pork. But some of the officers, Stephen says, said the wind might not take us as far as Fiji. What do you think, Jack? And I think this is Stephen's long-winded way of saying, I really want to go to Fiji, Jack. Are we going? Are we going? <laughs> and, you know, but, but Jack says, no, no, that's true. And it's a shame that they didn't give their dinner for the bride and groom a long time ago before the gun room had all these problems with its, its sheep and its other poultry and things. Now, Stephen says, well, well, wait a minute. Let's come back to the main point here. You know, are you telling me I'm not going to see Fiji? <laughs> and Jack, Jack reminds Stephen that he cannot command the wind. But he says, I, you know, I can give you another drink before we play our music for tonight. So <laughs> to take the sting off. And I'm quite relieved here that it's the wind that's getting in the way, not the priorities of the service. I'm fearing that, you know, we might have another right. blow up like we had just a couple of chapters ago. But it's, it is the wind. And Jack is absolutely right. He can't command the wind. And he's on the right track here. Offering Stephen a little, a little, little comfort in uh, in music. They get to playing and they stay up late. And uh, tiredness is starting to creep in a little bit here. Stephen says, "I must turn in." Stephen Matcherin says the text valued sleep and wooed it generally in vain. Now that he had abandoned Laudanum, Jack Aubrey valued it no more than the air he breathed, and it came to him at once. I love that writing; it's really, really great. Me too. Um, it's it's so inconsequential to Jack that it happens naturally. Stephen is almost successful getting himself off to sleep until Jack's snoring can't be blocked out and Stephen has to get up. He goes up on deck. He looks up at the sky. And as he's looking up there, Oakes steadies him as Stephen trips over a coil of rope and sits him down next to Clarissa. Clarissa is on deck too. She says that she hoped Dr. Matrin hadn't thought that she was speaking about Sarah and Emily when she'd made those rather blunt comments earlier on about children. No, she said, I was talking about children that have not been properly house-trained, left to their own impulses and indulged by doting or careless parents. Almost all children are yahoos, loud, selfish, cruel, 
unaffectionate, jealous, perpetually striving for attention, empty-headed, forever prating, or, if words fail them, simply bawling, their voices grown huge from daily practice, the very worst company in the world. But what I dislike even more than the natural child is the affected child, the hulking oaf of seven or eight that skips heavily about with her hands dangling in front of her, a little squirrel or a little bunny rabbit prattling away in a baby's voice. All the children I saw in New South Wales were yahoos. And Mike, I, yeah, she having started out by saying, I'm sorry, I wasn't really serious, but she's given rather too much detail <laughs> to convince her that she's not actually quite bent out of shape inside about children and her connection to them. Yeah, and it was so funny to me, Ian, that this is the, I, I've just wrapped up this two month visit with the kids and grandkids in North Carolina, right, kind of right. in, in this law of the pandemic, surrounded by this brood of grandchildren reading this as, as we're preparing for the episode here. And it, it gave me a <laughs> bit of a chuckle here. Well, <laughs> as the winds die down, they're getting closer to Fiji, but the winds are in fact diminishing. And, you know, we find that Mrs. Oaks is still very anxious to please in her gunroom conversations and, and you know, these bigger conversations with multiple officers on the deck and sometimes gets her into trouble because she's being so civil and so agreeable that she finds herself kind of agreeing with both people when they're disagreeing with each other, as when Stephen and David so often disagree on their opinions on things like arts and the music and, you know, the romantic versus the classical period here. However, when Stephen notes that when he's alone with her, Mrs. Oak seems to speak as she had earlier with Stephen. So she's still being very, very civil in bigger company. But with Stephen, she's just very straightforward, like you were saying, Ian. So we have this thing, you know, where uh, Clarissa is remembering Stephen having said once question and answer is not a civilized form of conversation. We also know somebody else who's made that comment, I believe. <laughs> Perhaps the author of this book. We'll come back to that here. And and Clarissa brings it back up and says she completely agrees. And that, you know, maybe it's just, you know, that she's specially wounded as a convict where everybody kind of expects you to account for yourself and that she finds perpetual inquisition quite odious, as she says. You know, Stephen says, yeah, you know, it's ill-bred. It's hard to turn aside gracefully and without giving an offense. And, and Stephen's sort of thinking to himself as an intelligence agent, you know, I, yeah, he absolutely dislikes all these questions because any one of them might threaten to expose him here. Now, Clarissa says that ever since she was young, she decided that impertinent questions, especially those that arise from a desire just to talk or, you know, what she calls vulgar curiosity, do not deserve true answers. But she finds out that when you just make things up, uh, which is what she was doing because, you know, they don't deserve the truth. It was almost impossible to keep up with all the lies. And now she just says, you know, whenever these things come up, that that's just a subject she prefers not to discuss. Uh, you know, who does this sound like, Ian? <laughs> oh, my, this is very Patrick O'Brien. And it's really fascinating. We had the, the Louisa Wogan character back in Desolation Island who had lots of the same kind of the role in the story that Clarissa Oakes has here. But this is the first time we've had another character come on the scene who is so like O'Brien in this respect of being personally really quite secretive and kind of concealing. And in a way, at the same time as Clarissa Oakes is concealing her past, I, I think O'Brien is doing a little bit of 
revealing here. See, this is this has a sort of confessional sense to me that he's saying, you know, feeling a bit icky around kids and how they behave and not liking to be asked questions and wanted to keep my stuff private. That's me. And I'm kind of working that out a little bit. I've almost reached the limit of ways in which I can confess myself through the mouth of Stephen Maturin. So now I've got this other character here to play this other really awkward role. And Maturin and Clarissa Harville, Clarissa Oaks as she is now, are both going to have to carry a bit of O'Brien's personality for us. And I, I wonder what that means for them. How close are they going to become attached as two human beings? Mm, yeah. And, and it's interesting. You know, on, on the one hand, we can say it's confessing. And on the other hand, we might call it justifying. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hurting. So, and he writes it so well that I think it can get, you can read it either way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Very clever. Really, really very clever. We left Jack Aubrey asleep in his hammock or in his cot. Uh, and we get reminded of that when uh, Clarissa is startled by a, a loud, repetitive noise. We don't get any other characterization of it, but straight away we know what it is. He says, oh, yeah, that's, that's Jack snoring. Davidge comes by and bumps into them and says, are you still here, Doctor? Don't you ever go to bed? In a tone that is clearly not a jovial, friendly tone. This sounds like it's a bit of an irritated tone. O'Brien simply says that this is a tone that Stephen had never before heard from Davidge. And Stephen makes no reply to it. Mrs. Oakes calls him out and says, for shame, and asks the Doctor to escort her to her cabin. And we're kind of invited to leave this at that for now. As they go down, they meet Jack coming up to, as he says, to check on the sails. And Mike, all the way through here, we're getting little doubts being sown in our mind about who's doing what for what reason. We had doubts about the motivation of Nathaniel Martin earlier on, and now we've got doubts about Davidge, and dare I say it even, doubts about Jack. And uh, we, we get to explore this a little bit, as O'Brien points out that Jack had been sleeping in later now that they're no longer pumping ship every morning. He's napping during the day and here come the doubts. He's been having many erotic dreams as Jack since being frustrated in New South Wales. He finds Clarissa Oakes is entering these dreams and entering his waking mind, his daydreams, to an unsuitable degree. And we know that Aubrey's not a rigid moralist. He knows about discipline. He knows about the proper running of a ship. And, says the text... No captain could make a cuckold of a subordinate and retain his full authority. So Jack's very present captaining mind knows that he can't make a move with these desires, but he he has the desires, and so does Stephen. He says he knows very well that naval wives, unless they give clear signs to the contrary, which Clarissa does not, are sacrosanct. And Jack's therefore got to manage himself away from the situation. He's got to avoid seeing her. As a result of this, he becomes unaware of her getting closer and closer with Pullings and with West. Maybe these are both characters that she might take pity on a little bit. They're both disfigured. Um, they had usually avoided women. But, says the text, her open, candid friendliness and her simplicity, her apparent simplicity, had encouraged them. And Mike, this is all still sounding very, very uneasy here when I think about the conduct of all these men for all their different reasons and you know, the, the light of Clarissa Oaks in the powder keg of all of this male stuff. Right. And and we've got, like you've been saying, in all these things simmering kind of below the surface and now adding another layer to that, 
We've got Jack, because of what's simmering below his surface, kind of missing out on a lot of it, right? So, you know, he, he missed out, as you said, you know, pulling and Wes kind of getting closer and closer to Clarissa. He missed out on Stephen's words to Davids, the ones that you just told us about. And he doesn't hear the conversation in the gun room the next day because he's not there, where Stephen asks Davidge, Mr. Davidge, how came you to speak so petulant to me last night? Davidge kind of backs down, says he's really being facetious, apologizes, but says, you know, I'll be happy to give you any satisfaction you choose the next time we're on shore. And I'm thinking... Holy smokes! You talk about you know you don't want to you don't want to poke the uh, <laughs> no don't do this you know we know Stephen's deadly at that but Stephen says no no uh, you know I'm fine but the next time you see me talking to Clarissa Oaks allow me to finish my sentence after all I might be on the edge of an of an epigram <laughs> you know a pithy or clever remark so Steve is being very gracious about this but. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I really wonder where this is going to go here. And and Jack doesn't know what the ship's crew is now talking about in terms of this encounter that, you know, in, in O'Brien's words, that the doctor had checked Mr. Davidge something cruel for speaking chuff in the first watch last night, had dragged him up and down the gunroom deck, flogging him with his gold-headed cane, had made him weep tears of blood. So this thing is really, you know, it's really getting out of hand here. And Jack didn't know that Martin is teaching Mrs. Oaks to play the viola until he hears this horrid screech come out of Martin's cabin that, you know, was too bad even for Martin. And Jack asks Stephen about it. And Stephen says, oh, you know, Martin's teaching her to play. Jack says, well, does she have any talent? And Stephen replies, none whatsoever. So, boy, you know, O'Brien has really turned up the heat and mixing the pot hard, I think, at this point here. I mean, and viola lessons. Aye, aye, aye. Honestly, Mike, this is reminding me that sometime many books ago, one of the characters, I think it might have been Stephen, talked in glowing terms about the civilizing influence that women have on men and perhaps on the crew of a ship. And wouldn't it be a good idea for all naval ships to have a good-looking but inaccessible woman? Yeah, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe it's that inaccessible word that's that's a bit of our issue here. Even though she's a naval wife, maybe she's not as inaccessible as we all think. Well, like you said earlier on, Jack is missing out on a lot of this. It's taking place in the gun room. It's taking a place away from his gaze. He's trying to avoid putting himself in a situation where he's in direct contact with Clarissa. He's spending much of his time instead working on all of these legal papers with Adams and also on writing to Sophie. He's currently writing in detail to her about his plans for increasing the Ashgrove Cottage standing of plantation trees. He also manages to mention her that Oakes is doing better after his marriage, that he's been rated as a master's mate. Mrs. Oakes, as described by Jack, is doing better and is well-liked by all the officers. Reed is devoted to her and she's kind to Reed and to the little girls. And this is all sounding quite kind of nice and bucolic and, you know, family friendly here. He says it's like a saloon with all of them talking. And and now he starts to give away what's happening. Even Tom Pullings, usually so shy in company, talking away and laughing. She's so popular, he says. He's amazed that the gunroom hasn't given her her bride's feast yet. Although he knows they've had trouble with the livestock and they want to do it right. If they keep delaying, she'll be a mother before her bridal banquet. And this is also so innocent sounding coming off of Jack's pen. We can hear 
between the lines of what's happening in the background, even if he's not intending to communicate it. Heaven only knows what Sophie's going to think when she reads these lines about how wonderful and biddable and charming Mrs. Oaks is. Well, we'll see. Even the hands, writes Jack, skip higher and sing sweeter when she is around. And th- there's a phrase to write to woman, one woman about another woman calculated to put the uh, the cat among the pigeons. Jack confides to Sophie very innocently that he's a bit worried about Stephen, who's often with her. Yeah, right. He knows that Sophie will protest and say, no, no, never, Stephen. He's too high-minded and philosophical. And, and Jack agrees that he knows no one less likely to play the fool. Yet, says Jack, writing, we are meant to believe completely about Stephen. Yes, Jack, we believe you. These feelings may come upon a man before he is aware. Even the wisest can go astray. Stephen told me himself that St. Augustine was not always quite the thing where young women were concerned. And I should be very sorry, writes Jack, if it were to happen to him. Huh. What, what do you make of this, Mike? Well, you know, I'm, I'm no therapist, but I, I, I would say, Jack, I think you're talking about yourself and not yes. Stephen here. There's, yeah. there's a, there must be a name right. for this particular kind of transference, but I'm sure that's what it is that's going on. Uh, well, you know, Jack leaves uh, realizing that they're, they're about to enter the cabin, do a clean sweep for and after the day's gunnery practice. They beat to quarters, but Jack overhearing Stephen telling a seaman that his disorder was the remorse of a guilty stomach, all of a sudden tells Pullings that, you know, next day is a saluting day. Maybe we'll just rattle them in and out a couple of times today, take in some sail and give the rest of the day to the king. I, I think perhaps <laughs> Stephen's comment just reminded Jack that maybe what you just penned is a little bit more about yeah. you, buddy. Who knows? But we always have music to assuage this, right? Yeah, we do. So th- that evening, Jack and Stephen are playing... Um, Mozartian pieces, not necessarily exclusively Mozart, but pieces inspired by Mozart, just just for their love of the great man. And I'm there with them. This sounds like a really, really nice evening. For, he says, although there were no canonical violin and cello duets to be played, and by the way, on that, he's absolutely right. Mozart didn't write anything for violin and cello. A bold mind could transcribe those for violin and viola, in parenthesis. There absolutely were at least a couple of sets of violin and viola duets and some others for the French horn as well as he says a variety of songs the fiddle taking the voice and the cello something resembling the accompaniment while boldness on quite another scale could wander among the operas stating various passages in unison and then improvising alternately upon the theme very nicely done o'brien it gives them really great joy jack recalls what he calls a, a drunken whoremaster crying as he went with Jack and heard Mozart's Sotto i Pini, which he's referring to here a couple of lines, actually, from a duet. Sotto i Pini comes from the middle of the, the duet song Che Suave Zeffiretto at the end of Act 3 of Marriage of Figaro. And we should just listen to a little bit of it here. Let's, t- let's get the run-up, then let's get Sotto i Pini.
Okay, so there you have it. it. It's very nice, but it doesn't really stand out as a piece of text all by itself. But the scene in which this little duet is sung is a really intelligently chosen one. Um, the Countess and the Maid Susanna are writing a false letter to the Count, trying to provoke him into revealing his faithlessness. So letter writing to expose a husband's infidelity, that's that's quite a nice tie-in, I think, even if Sotui Pini doesn't quite make it. Nice. Well, I, I, I love that, you know, we talked about Jack and Stephen in a relationship to sleeping. Jack turns to Stephen and says, don't you find joy makes you <laughs> sleepy? You know, Jack's like yawning and about to fall off here. Stephen says he does not. <laughs> and, he, and further, he tells Jack that sleep and fatness go hand in hand together and suggests that Jack can find him to one serving of toasted cheese tonight. <laughs> Jack says, well, maybe on some other night, but not on Guy Fawkes Eve. And Jack says, if I didn't celebrate that, it would be close to treason tasting of rank popery oh lord stephen i'm laid by the lee again i'm so sorry <laughs> here you know we we have stephen with his usual jack yeah yeah way too much jack with his hey here's a good reason to drink and eat a little bit more and because i'm having fun let me put my foot in the mouth about about your catholicism stephen yeah. sorry about that well th- this chapter has got tension and uneasiness and metaphor and symbology written all the way through it, but we're not quite done yet. We've got one more symbol to come. It's been a while since we had uh, since we had the whole shark thing, many, many books ago. Here comes an even better bit of symbolism. It's morning time, and Reed has a hard time waking up Captain Aubrey. He brings a message bearing Captain Pauling's duty and a report that the ship's side has been pierced. Pierced, he says, just abaft willful murder. Willful murder being one of the well-known names of the canon. And Jack says, are we still making water? Is there water coming aboard? And Reed says, they're not, because it was a swordfish. And the swordfish's sword is still there, plugging up the hole. And Jack wonders if this is all some kind of hazing. Am I being made game of? Playing off your humours on me, is how he describes it. And tells Reed to go let the doctor know. He asks if the fish has been taken up, and Reed says, Awkward Davis threw a harping iron into him so hard that it went through the fish's head, and now they're trying to get a line around the tail. And Mike, besides the metaphor of, you know, a, a fish with, with a pokey thing, let's put it that way, um, right. penetrating the side of some sensitive seagoing body here. Oh, dear me, imagery. We get another great piece of brinery as it's hoisted on board. We get asked the famous question, can he be et? I think this is only the second time in the canon we get asked this question. Can he be Ed? Stephen assures Tom, this is a saltish. This eats very well. And Pauline says, at last, we can have the bride's feast. And there's this general feeling of levity. There's feeling that this deadly fish, having penetrated the side of the ship, after all, is going to be a benign influence. We get to have the feast. Awkward Davis says, I caught him. He says, I caught him for the captain. And Jack says, well done. It must weigh 500 pounds. And I've got to say, Mike, a 500-pound swordfish is, 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 is quite the feast here. And Davis says, you shall have his tail and belly, sir. You shall blow out your kite with his tail and belly. And blowing out your kite means filling up your stomach. Old English word meaning womb or belly. And happy days. The, the swordfish has fixed everything. We're going to have the feast. No more awkward symbolism. No more misunderstandings. Oh, no, everything's going to be okay. Mike? Or is it? 
Yeah, yeah. I just, I just can't help but think. You're, to your point, you know, we've been pierced <laughs> under the waterline here. There's some piercing going on under the waterline. You know, I, I, I remember back to Stephen. You know, when when Clarissa Oaks first came up, Clarissa Harville at the time, thinking back to this, you know, the impact of one drop of a catalyst in a chemical reaction. And I think we're seeing the chemical reaction now exploding across the beaker, if you will, here, punctuated <laughs> by the swordfish. And as, as, as you say here, you know, the officers, their gaiety, also their tension, and then the impact on the rest of the crew. And we know that anything that affects the officers and tension between them has an impact on the crew and tension between them. I just don't think this situation is ever a good thing. But I'm also recalling that we're kind of headed on our way to perhaps go into action in, in this new mission south of the Sandwich Islands. So, you know, I think we want the ship together, the ship operating on, on all barrels, if you will, on all cylinders, if you will. And, and we're even skipping gunnery practice. You know, when yeah. does Jack Aubrey ever skip gunnery practice? So who knows? What do you think, Ian? Well, I think we've got Jack... Trying, trying aversion therapy to stop himself lusting after Clarissa Oaks. Um, Stephen, I mean, that encounter between Stephen and Davidge, really, really harsh, suddenly sets this note of competition. Why? Stephen's not immune from the toxic masculinity, this whole competition going on in the ship here. Davidge and West already at each other's throats. Who knows? Reed and the other midshipmen as well. And meanwhile, this duality, this, this, this two-faced character of Clarissa Oakes kind of sailing through the story. On the one hand, the very biddable kind of middle-class female. On the other hand, this ruthless Medea character. There are troubles at home for Stephen. There are troubles at home potentially for Jack as well. There are conflicts between Stephen and Jack about orders. Oh, that we're going to be busy in this chapter. Nathaniel Martin, how, how much less of a nice person can Nathaniel Martin get? How much more shallow and self-regarding can this guy get? There's a lot still to come here. <laughs> yeah. You know, I can't help but think that what we're seeing is, is at O'Brien at his best. You know, he always includes in his palette shades of gray for his characters, even our heroes. Right. And boy, we're, right. we're just seeing this spread all over this chapter here and, and kind of looking like it'll continue. And, and I kind of made me pause to say, yeah, this was definitely the chapter to say, we don't want this whole question and answer thing because there are a lot of questions that none of us want to answer right. about our lives. <laughs> no, there's, there's there's no single character in the cast of characters in this chapter that hasn't got something that they could do with concealing a little bit. And aren't, aren't, aren't we yeah. all being written about here? It's a really, really good point, Mike. Well, I can't wait to find out what we do find as answers to some of those questions. And we know, as always, there's only one way to get there. What do you say, Ian, next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, I should like that of all things. says even the hands 
skip higher and swing seater. <laughs> it was a great girl. one. I love that. Well done, <laughs> Even the hands, writes Jack, skip higher and sing sweeter.